Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthol. What is common carriage? How does it interact with the First Amendment? Is it something the government can use to force social media websites to host speech they'd rather not host? Today, I'll be discussing those questions and somewhat moderating a debate about them with two distinguished guests. Eugene Volok is the Gary T. Schwartz Distinguished Professor at UCLA School of Law. He teaches on the First Amendment, among many other topics, and runs the school's First Amendment amicus brief clinic. He's the founder and namesake of the prominent legal blog, The Volok Conspiracy, which has been going strong since 2002. Baron Soka, of course, is the founder and president of Tech Freedom, as well as a frequent guest and occasional host of this podcast. I should note that I'm not exactly neutral here. On behalf of Tech Freedom, Baron and I submitted an amicus brief in federal district court, arguing that Florida's social media speech regulation, SB 7072, cannot properly be viewed as common carriage. That said, Professor Volokh is a brilliant guy, and I really like to bait Barron, so this should be interesting. Barron and Eugene have discussed these issues at a couple other events, but we have a new wrinkle for this one. A couple days before this recording, U.S. District Judge Robert Hinkle enjoined the state of Florida from enforcing that law I just mentioned. Among other things, SB 7072 says that major social media websites may not de-platform political candidates, that they must allow users to opt out of post-prioritization on news feeds, and that they must apply their content moderation rules in a, quote, consistent manner. The judge noted that the law, quote, compels social media providers to host speech that violates their standards, speech they otherwise would not host and forbids providers from speaking as they otherwise would. The judge noted that the law impermissibly discriminated based on content and viewpoint, and that Florida's legislators clearly passed the law out of spite toward big tech. The judge's ruling leans heavily on the fact that SB 7072 is so blatantly a government effort to target perceived political enemies. When it came to the First Amendment status of the websites, The strength of the First Amendment rights the websites hold to begin with, however, Judge Hinkle was more nuanced. He wrote, quote, the plaintiffs say, in effect, that they should be treated like any other speaker. The state says, in contrast, that social media providers are more like common carriers, transporting information from one person to another, much as a train transports people or products from one city to another. The truth is in the middle. Unquote. So with that rather long windup out of the way, I look forward to hearing from Eugene and Barron. Gentlemen, welcome. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I'm sure we'll branch out into a larger discussion of common carriage and social media. But to start with, just to launch things off, I am interested in if you guys have any impressions about Judge Hinkle's decision. So um, Eugene, you're the you're the guest. I mean, would you care to start us off? Sure. There's much that I agree with uh, the judge on, and there is uh, a little I disagree with. I think this is a very peculiar kind of law that is targeted at very specific kinds of speech, uh, specifically journalistic speech, however it's defined, and speech by and about candidates. 
Um, it also has peculiar exceptions, like for speech of entities that have theme parks. Uh, so uh, I, I think that the, the, the judge was right to, to, to strike down at least much of the law. Um, it's an interesting question what it means for other such laws in the future. Uh, just to give an example, there was back in 1980, the court struck down a ban on residential picketing, people picketing outside people's homes. And it struck it down because there was an exception for labor picketing. Just several years later, uh, the Supreme Court upheld a content neutral ban on residential picketing because it said, well, now it's content neutral and that's okay. In a sense, it's a broader ban than the original one, but it was upheld whereas the original was struck down. So likewise, you often can't tell from a particular uh, decision striking down a particular law based in its particular design, what would happen as to other such laws. One thing that I do think was pretty noteworthy uh, is the, uh, the judge's, uh, uh, the judge's uh, statement, and let me make sure that I have it uh, correctly here, that uh, two precedents, Fair and Pruneyard, established that compelling a person to allow a visitor access to the person's property for the purpose of speaking is not a First Amendment violation. So long as the person is not compelled to speak, the person is not restricted from speaking, and the message of the visitor is not likely to be attributed to the person. Uh, so I think that's a recognition of two very important precedents that indeed so held. Maybe they shouldn't have. Maybe we should be more respectful of private property rights of uh, property owners generally. But the court uh, in those cases said it is okay to require universities and to require shopping malls uh, as uh, as kind of the new public square, in a sense, to uh, allow uh, speakers on their private property. And uh, the logic of those cases, I think, suggests that some such requirements, uh, as applied to the new, new public square of uh, uh, social media platforms, uh, might be constitutional as well. At the same time, the court, I think, quite rightly said that the Florida statutes, unlike the ones in Fair and Pruneyard, explicitly forbid social media platforms from appending their own statements to posts by some users. The statute would have barred platforms for, for example, fact-checking certain posts, and they compel to change their own speech in other respects, for example, by dictating how the platforms may arrange speech on their sites. That too, I think the court was quite right to recognize and therefore strike down this particular statute. Thank you, uh, Professor. And before we turn to Baron, um, just to be clear about where you stand, because I, I think from what I've heard you say in other events, um, you, you're not currently um, waving the flag for common carriage being applied uh, on social media and, and being the champion of that. You're open to it. You're thinking about it. You think it might be plausible. And, and if I'm right about that, when you look at SB 7072, um, to what degree do you look at that law and it's within the realm of what you're thinking about might be plausible? And to what degree maybe do you look at it and go, wow, this thing is terribly drafted and I, I, I want nothing to do with this law? Well, I, I do think the judge was right to strike down this particular Florida law. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, um, so l let's just look a little bit at, uh, at, uh, uh the, uh, uh, Rumsfeld v. Fair case. Uh, uh, that's a Supreme Court precedent, a unanimous decision, which held that Congress could, if it wanted to, mandate that, um, uh, 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 universities, including private universities, allow, uh, military recruiters on campus alongside other recruiters. 
Uh, and the court said, look, that's permissible because it doesn't affect the, at least doesn't directly affect the university's own speech, doesn't ban the universities, uh, uh, the university from criticizing military recruiters. Recall this was at a time when the military, oh, excuse me, many universities were upset that the military's uh, uh, policy of discriminating based on sexual orientation. Uh, and uh, uh, that uh, given that it allows universities to say what they want to say, uh, that law uh, uh, can permissibly require the universities to host on their property uh, recruiters. So compelling someone to host someone on their property isn't necessarily a First Amendment violation. Uh, now, if um, uh, Congress had said, and on top of that, you, the university, can't create a hostile environment for recruiters by criticizing them. The, court, the court's reasoning made clear that that would have been unconstitutional. Uh, uh, and yet that's in a sense what Florida is trying to do. It's trying to say in certain situations, um, uh, you, uh, the uh, platforms can't even post their own speech saying, you know, this thing that somebody posted, we disapprove of that or we think it's false or whatever else. That is a restriction on their speech. And just as I think Rumsfeld and Pruneyard and other cases suggest that it's okay to require platforms simply to host certain speech that they may disapprove of. Likewise, they also hold that the platforms still have to remain free to express their own views. And the Florida law violated that principle. Well, uh, Baron. on to you. Uh, initial impressions about Judge Hinkle's decision and, uh, you know, any preliminary responses to what we've heard so far from Eugene. Well, emphasis on the word preliminary. This is uh, a, an opinion issued on a motion for a preliminary injunction. It is not a final uh, adjudication of the case. Uh, this was very rushed. Uh, the judge had literally two days after oral arguments in the case and only, uh, I think, uh, a few weeks uh, after receiving the briefs uh, to write a, uh, an opinion on very complicated issues. And, and it's not an easy thing to do. And it's not surprising that an opinion like that is necessarily rough. It contains a, a few um, typographical errors. It's not, it's not the level of um, uh, reasoned decision-making that even this judge, I'm sure, uh, would produce later on in this case when, for example, there is a motion to dismiss filed. So it's worth just noting up front that uh, no one is going to be totally satisfied with an opinion issued at this stage of, of, the, uh, of the proceeding. And the question here, of course, is, uh, is not whether the plaintiffs are uh, actually definitely right, uh, but rather whether there is a, a real possibility of, of uh, harm being uh, inflicted upon them in uh, depriving them of their First Amendment rights by allowing the state to enforce the law. So that's the posture of this decision. That's just worth keeping in mind. Um, now, with that said, uh, I think Eugene uh, is exactly right to, to focus on the sentence that he did from the opinion, uh, because I think that is an accurate statement of the Supreme Court's uh, approach here in Fair and Pruneyard. Uh, and I think the, the questions that we'll be debating today are about um, how to apply the, that idea to the facts of this case. So let, let's just read again what, what the court said. Fair and Pruneyard established that compelling a person to allow a visitor access to that person's property for the purpose of speaking is not a First Amendment violation, so long as the person is not compelled to speak, number one, the person is not restricted from speaking. We just talked about, about that, and here they clearly were. And then third, the message of the visitor is not likely to be attributed to the person. Uh, so I think that the first and third prongs of that test are really what we are debating here today. Uh, and they're interrelated. And I just, I would point out, for example, that 
in Hurley, the, the parade uh, case where the court ruled that you couldn't compel a parade organizer to allow signs in the parade that it objected to, uh, the court had to survey its past cases. And they talked about uh, the um, Pacific Gas and Electric case where the, uh, the state had attempted to coerce a regulated utility to include um, content that was critical of the utility in the uh, newsletter that went along with the bill inside that, that envelope. Uh, and the court said that um, uh, coerced access there uh, was a problem because the utility, quote, may be forced either to appear to agree with the intruding leaflet or to respond. And I, I, I would just note, those are, those are two kinds of problems here, either one of which uh, can create a First Amendment problem under the line that uh, Professor Volokh has, has quoted. And I think both are present here um, because when uh, we've talked about depriving them of the right to respond, which is another part of this test, um, but it's also the case here uh, that if, if um, for example, uh, Twitter uh, uh, had been compelled uh, to continue to carry uh, the former guy's uh, content. Uh, Twitter would have faced both problems. It would have, on the one hand, uh, and this, this is where I think we disagree factually, uh, would have been uh, held responsible by many people uh, who assumed that the decision to keep Twitter uh, on the platform uh, represented a judgment on the part of Twitter. Uh, even, even if Twitter could say, well, look, this is the government's making us do this, I think people would still blame them, both individual users and advertisers, uh, in particular because there's always going to be discretion involved in those in those judgments. Uh, but even more importantly, um, because of that uncertainty, uh, the, the, the Twitter or, or whatever other platform would feel compelled to respond. Uh, and, and that itself is a, a form of compelled speech and it's thorny. It's not as simple as trying to disclaim uh, responsibility because of course uh, we've seen Twitter go through exactly this. They tried to do this first. Their initial response was not to ban uh, the former guy, it was to uh, append um, notices next to his tweets and uh, to otherwise try to disclaim responsibility. And what Twitter discovered uh, is that that actually got them more embroiled in a uh, political fight, uh, as speech always does. And so when the court talks about how uh, it, you, you can't be compelled uh, to speak, even if this, the speaking is just to disclaim uh, responsibility, it's, it's exactly that kind of thing. It's getting enmeshed further in these debates uh, simply by virtue of trying to uh, disassociate yourself from speech that you don't want. And that, that's exactly what, uh, what the court said there, that the government, uh, if it were otherwise, the government could require speakers uh, to affirm in one breath uh, that which they uh, deny in the next. That is, you know, to have the speech up, uh, but then to say, oh, no, no, we're not responsible for it. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, my take on the case uh, is although there's some confusion about this and we can talk about uh, how, how I think the judge got there, I think the key question is really about um, uh, whether you are uh, going to be put in that position of being of having uh, responsibility attributed to you for speech uh, that is on your platform or being uh, 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 compelled in essence uh, to, to, to say something about it when you might want to just not say anything at all and not get involved in this hyper-partisan uh, a political fight, and of course, the judge noted that's exactly what we're talking about here. It's not, it's not, um, you know, irrelevant gray area decisions. It's the most ideologically contentious uh, judgment calls in America today that are at issue in this case. So uh, I appreciate Barron's point, and there's a plausible argument that you should never have a situation where a private property owner is required to allow speech on its own property, because whenever it's so required, people might assume 
that it's not being required to do that, might assume that it's just voluntarily doing it, might therefore be upset. And then the private property owner would then have to be doing or say something to disclaim that, and that gets him more entangled in the debate. Wouldn't it be better if the private property owner was just able to say, nope, I'm going to sit all this out by banning speech from my property I dislike? Perfectly plausible position. It's just not the position that the Supreme Court has uh, has ultimately adopted. And my authority for that is Rumsfeld v. Ferrigan. It's a relatively recent decision. It's the most recent one on these topics from 2006. So recall, universities were, were actually, they were being pressured by the threat of loss of money. But the court said, we don't even need to get into that because let's just assume that this was a total requirement on univer that universities uh, uh, host these military recruiters. Uh, and this would still be constitutional. Now, universities were saying, look, we don't approve of, uh, of military recruiters because the military discriminates based on sexual orientation. What's more, lots of our members of the community, lots of students and others disapprove. We've, in the briefing, they specifically say we've had to engage in all of the speech to denounce the recruiters and explain our position. And that's just, that's just stuff we don't necessarily want to be forced to do. And the court unanimously rejected that. The court said nothing about recruiting suggests that law schools agree with any speech by recruiters, even though, of course, uh, the recruiters were on their property. Presumably, there would be no, no such suggestion because people would understand or could be told that they were being essentially required, the universities were required to host this. And nothing in the Solomon Amendment restricts what the law schools may say about the military's policies. We have held that high school students can appreciate the difference between speech of school sponsors and speech the school permits because legally required to do so. Surely students have not lost that ability by the time they get to law school, says the court. Again, a unanimous court, this left and right agree on this. I think the same thing applies here, right? It's true that uh, uh, um, Twitter may not want to have certain speech on its property, just like universities didn't want to have certain speech on their property. It's true some people might at first infer, especially not knowing of the coercion, that Twitter has it voluntarily on the property. Likewise, some people surely could have inferred that in Rumsfeld v. Fair. Uh, but at the same time, the court is essentially saying, look, this doesn't really matter, in part because the law schools may say anything they wish about the military's policies. The law schools may say we disagree with the military's policies or may even simply say we are hosting the military because we are required to do so. Now, it's true, of course, the court recognized that that would involve some pressure on law schools to say something, to explain things to people who might not otherwise not know about this coercion. But the court was unmoved. So the question is, uh, if universities could be required to host things on their property uh, that were uh, uh, well known to be offensive to many in the university community, and that the only way to deflect some of that, uh, uh, some of the anger that will come to the universities is by universities speaking up and explaining why they're hosting it, because they were basically being coerced into doing that. That, if it's true that that's okay, as it is under Rumsfeld, I would say the same thing would be okay as to Twitter. Um, Baron, and let me turn it back to you while also uh, throwing in another a point, because it does seem that there is First Amendment valence to whether or not people associate the speech with you. But um, is that not kind of throwing a hostage to fortune, if you will? I mean, if activist groups decide to pressure 
companies and make a lot of noise about the services they provide, what's to stop that doctrine from spreading? I mean, until the point where uh, the electric company, you know, is getting blamed for providing power to the house of the white supremacist so that his computer works so that he can spread hate online. Um, just leaving it to what people uh, shout at companies for would seem to uh, sort of create problems. Well, uh, as I said, we agree what the relevant cases are. Uh, we, we, I think, disagree about the interpretation of um, the, the facts in those cases and how similar they are to the facts here. So uh, I think the key words in the passage that uh, Eugene just quoted from uh, Thayer is nothing about recruiting. Uh, I interpret that case as being um, very specific to uh, the nature of the activity at issue, which is the university was being compelled to provide a room in which private conversations were held and uh, the universities themselves objected to the uh, organizer of those meetings because the military discriminated against gays. Uh, and the question was, would the university uh, be held to have endorsed um, the military's don't ask, don't tell policy by virtue of providing that room and sending out an email to students telling them what room to go to. That, that, that's, I think, a fair characterization of, of what was happening uh, in, in Rumsfeld and what, what was uh, about recruiting, to use the, the court's uh, terms. Uh, this, to me, is radically different. Uh, here, we are talking about uh, an expressive uh, product, uh, a, an online community that has been organized by a platform that from the start, literally from the earliest days, uh, has held itself out as enforcing certain community standards. If you, we, we, we've done this, we've gone back and looked at the very first uh, Facebook community standards. You can go back and look at uh, Prodigy and other services. Uh, and they've all said from the start that they have certain values about what uh, uh, online discourse looks like and, and what it means to have a constructive conversation. And they've said, for example, that um, uh, racial uh, discrimination, uh, epithets, uh, et cetera, are antithetical uh, to that experience. Um, that That is a lot more to me like interfering with what uh, goes on in the classroom, not in a private recruiting uh, meeting that happens to be held on the property of the law school. And so the, the, the question you have to ask really is, again, uh, will someone reasonably attribute to the speaker uh, content on that service. And I would just give you a few examples of why I think this is uh, so very different. Um, when we talk about uh, Twitter, let, let's, let's just suppose that there were some kind of uh, disclaimer that, that Twitter uh, did try to add to communicate, as Eugene is expressing, that they are being uh, compelled to add speech. Uh, that's not such an easy thing. If they do that selectively, they are effectively uh, it, uh, singling out particular content and effectively actually uh, saying that this, this is particular content that is worthy of, of their program. And we know already that that will get them attacked in exactly the way that it did get Twitter attacked when Twitter tried to disassociate itself from uh, the particular uh, comments of, uh, of the former guy uh, last year. Uh, so, so what are they going to do? If they, are they going to put this on, on every piece of content and say that they're not responsible uh, for everything? Uh, how does that work in practice? And how does it work in instances when, for example, you're not merely on the Twitter site? A lot of the way that social media works is that uh, one tweet or Facebook post or video uh, gets embedded somewhere else. And 
The question is, if I'm, for example, let us say, uh, reading a report from the Simon Wiesenthal Center about the prevalence of anti-Semitism online, and I see a slew of embedded um, posts from Twitter, uh, where Twitter is now being compelled to allow Nazis to use the site, as happens regularly on Parler. Uh, uh, the question is, what does the reasonable person uh, think? Uh, and I, I think the reasonable person thinks uh, that uh, Twitter is uh, is responsible, just as they would think today that, that Parler is responsible, that Parler's made an editorial judgment not to remove that kind of content. And I don't see how a disclaimer uh, can, can effectively solve that problem, especially when we're talking about these many contexts in which you can you can see content like that. Uh, are, uh, is Twitter going to have to build onto its very tightly worded uh, embed for every tweet, uh, a disclaimer that says Twitter is not responsible for every tweet? And if they did, would it matter? I don't think it would. I think that users uh, would continue to blame uh, these services for that content. And most importantly, that advertisers uh, would blame them. The advertiser doesn't care whether there's a disclaimer. What the advertiser wants is for their their baby soap or uh, or diapers or other products not to be associated with content that they find repugnant. And so the advertiser, I think, very reasonably insists upon uh, the enforcement of these community standards. And it's worth pointing out that all ad, uh, ad-supported social media services have some version of these. Uh, the exceptions, uh, the sites that don't, are services like Parler. Uh, which are not uh, supported by uh, large numbers of advertisers. They effectively have no advertising market because very few serious brands want to put their content up on a site like that. So to me, that is the the problem of attribution. It's very different from the problem uh, at issue in Rumsfeld of um, you know what what goes on in a private room and whether allowing the military to to recruit despite their uh, anti uh, LGBT policy uh, is somehow uh, associated with the university. So in bouncing this back to you, Eugene, let me ask, uh, you know, are we correctly drilling down on association with the speech as, a, as an important issue? And if we are, I mean, do we need to start taking surveys among average people? You know, do you associate recruiter speech at a law school with the law school, you know, check yes or no? And, and then how do we deal with the problem I mentioned earlier of if that's the standard, it kind of encourages bad behavior. It encourages... Uh, pressure groups basically to harass uh, at the end of the, you know, maybe even the electric company. I don't know, but please. Yeah. You know, the views of advertisers, it seems to me, they're, they're important. Uh, I, I don't dismiss them, uh, but they're not enough to trump a uh, democratically uh, enacted statute. Likewise, I think the unreasonable inferences of, uh, uh, of uh, some people, some observers that could be pretty easily dispelled with adequate information are also, it seems to me, not enough to trump these kinds of statutes. Um, universities, uh, of course, uh, Barron pointed out that platforms have their own kind of social norms that they've long been trying to enforce. So have universities, right? Private universities have long had lots of norms, uh, certainly about what goes on in their classes, but also maybe what goes on in their campus. Some of them have been relatively uh, uh, libertarian, even on their own property. Others may not have been. 
doesn't matter for purposes of, uh, uh, of the law upheld in Rumsfeld v. Fair. What's more, the, the, um, the, the speech that had to be permitted uh, by universities in Rumsfeld wasn't just kind of in a closed door uh, recruiting room. They also had to include uh, basically the locations and information about uh, uh, about the recruiters in uh, in their mailings and in their their announcements about where things are. So people certainly knew that there were going to be these recruiters. People knew that the university was hosting these recruiters, and it was essentially the university's burden, if it wanted to shoulder that burden, to explain to its community that this is now the rule and we're kind of stuck with it. So don't blame us. And if you do blame us, well, too bad. Let's look at the other case, Pruneyard, which the court mentioned. So that's a 1980 case, which involved a California rule, which said private shopping centers had to allow uh, leaf litters and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, signature gatherers on their property, at least the property that's open to the public. Now, of course, private shopping centers also have often tried very hard to create a particular atmosphere. They certainly carefully control what speech they put up and what speech their commercial tenants put up. Nonetheless, they had to allow speakers and not just kind of humdrum ordinary members of the community. Um, later cases from California courts made clear just how demanding this was. So for example, uh, one shopping center wanted to ban um, uh, 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 anti-abortion protesters who were displaying gruesome images of aborted fetuses, presumably because it's always bad for business. Maybe can chase away customers, but even if it does it, it kind of keeps them from being in a good shopping mood, right? California courts applying this Pruneyard doctrine that the court upheld in the Pruneyard case said, nope, you, the uh, shopping mall owner, can't restrict content of speech that way. What about speech that urges the boycott of commercial tenants in that very shopping center? Surely that is a pretty serious economic possible blow to the shopping center. In principle, it might lead some tenants to say, look, What's the point of me being in this in this big mall if I'm just going to incur all of this protesting? If I can just go and if if they had their own private standalone uh, store, then they wouldn't be subject to the same rule. Nonetheless, the California courts said, nope, you shopping centers have to allow this. Uh, likewise, shopping centers are, are understandably concerned that when they see some protester, they're going to, uh, people might assume, or some speaker people might assume that the shopping center is endorsing it. And all around California, when I've gone shopping at various places, I've seen signs saying, oh, we do not endorse these particular, these particular speakers. Um, and that's seen as an acceptable burden on the shopping centers. To be sure, it is a burden. It may be an unfair burden. I certainly sympathize with the property rights concerns of the shopping centers or of Twitter or of Facebook. But if you look at cases like Pruneyard and you look at cases like Rumsfeld, it seems to me pretty clear that you can't defeat one of these open access regulations or even limited open access as in Rumsfeld, which only allowed one speaker to come on, um, uh, simply because some people might misattribute this to the property owner. Uh, the solution to that is to educate people, right? Uh, Twitter is a pretty well-known 
well-known entity out there, presumably one way or another, if there is such a law, let's take the simplest case, if it's a federal statute, if there is such a law that's enacted that mandates that Twitter uh, be essentially a kind of common carrier for this, the way that phone companies are, the way UPS and FedEx is and such, presumably it won't be long before the great bulk of the public is aware of that, if only because Twitter tries hard, even if imperfectly, to make them aware of that. And once that's so, as I read Rumsfeld and Pruneyard, uh, once that so the fact that some people might still erroneously misunderstand the relationship there or might take it out against the property owner, even though, uh, even though they're aware that the property owner is being required to host this well, that just can't affect the First Amendment analysis, it seems to me. So, Baron, obviously, you know, I want you to respond about Pruneyard. Um, but before you do, or maybe as you do, so you two are both discussing specific cases uh, very adeptly, but to a listener who's maybe not familiar with those, I, I could see the question arising. Okay, now we're talking about like shopping malls. How does common carriage fit into this? So, um, to use a really fancy word, you know, what's the ontology of common carriage? Like, as a company, are you are you born as a common carrier by nature of what you do, or is it something the government declares y- you are that, or or which way do we come from? Do we analyze like the facts in in Pruneyard, and when we're done, we conclude common carrier, or you know where does common carriage fit in as you're discussing a case like Pruneyard that is about a shopping center or fair that is about a law school? Uh, there's a lot there. Let me let me try to tackle all of that. Um, I will start by saying that uh, the the important thing about shopping centers is they're not in the speech business. Everything that happens there is incidental to their business. It might be disruptive to their business, um, but you don't go as a normal customer to the shopping center uh, to find the speech of others there. the 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 purpose of social media platforms, as they say again and again. Uh, is to provide a uh, a curated kind of conversation where they they have done certain things, as we said in our brief. Uh, they they operate like gardeners. They remove some content. They encourage other content in order to present a pleasant experience uh, for users. That's what they've done. That's what they've always done. And that history matters. We know that history matters because uh, the court in Turner, where the court upheld a must carry mandate for. Uh, cable companies uh, noted, given cable's long history, dating back to the 1960s, uh, of serving as a conduit for broadcast signals, there appears little risk that cable viewers would assume that the broadcast stations carried on a cable system convey ideas or messages endorsed by the cable operator. And indeed, in that case, while the cable operators uh, fought tooth and nail uh, to try to reclaim control of 100% of their channel capacity, because that's how they made money, and losing control of a third of it was a huge economic uh, cost to them. Um, they never objected to the content that they were being asked to carry. They never said, oh, broadcast content is uh, is problematic. And that's in part because broadcast content, of course, was was heavily uh, filtered. It was um, policed by the FCC for indecency. Uh, it was policed by broadcasters themselves for all sorts of things. So that case did not involve the kind of, of content level objection that we're talking about here uh, at all. And to me, it, it illustrates a very clear contrast. Unlike cable operators, uh, social media have always held themselves out uh, as, as providing a kind of curated experience. And they're now saying, we don't want to host content like this. So it is very clearly uh, distinguishable from uh, from Turner. I think it's also distinguishable from FAIR. I don't want to spend uh, all of our time 
uh, talking mm. about that case. But I just I would just note that uh, once again, uh, I think it actually does matter whether speech is attributed to you. Uh, the court has said so over and over again, and that has to mean something. Uh, and I, I think it can't mean that the court can the government can simply compel you uh, to carry the speech of others. And in particular, I think the concept of common carriage helps us to understand when that will and won't work. So we, we, Eugene and I have talked about common carriage in the past. Uh, so historically, common carriage is, uh, for example, uh, innkeepers uh, are common carriers. Um, that's uh, in part because innkeepers uh, have uh, uh, something like something akin to the gatekeeper power that uh, cable operators possessed in Turner, which is if you're a traveler on the roads in the Middle Ages uh, and you are on, on the highway, uh, there's one in and the sun is going down. And that's the only place to stop. And that, if that uh, innkeeper refuses to host you, you are out on the street at the, at the mercy of, uh, of bandits, literally. And I'll, I'll um, be happy to point you to uh, Wyman's uh, excellent 1904 article on the history of this, right? So that's a, that's a unique indispensability that we would think of today as um, something that goes much beyond normal market power. And it really is an exceptional degree of, of control. And the same thing is true for transportation. Uh, that, that's uh, the other context in which common carriage uh, has developed, and that meant toll roads historically, and of course, railroads uh, in this country. Uh, and what the um, courts have said about the meaning of common carriage uh, in general, uh, and especially with respect to transportation, uh, is that um, the nature of common carriage is really holding yourself out uh, as uh, serving the public indifferently. And now that doesn't mean you don't remove everyone, uh, anyone, excuse me. Uh, our uh, amicus brief in the Florida case, uh, uh, in fact, documents that even if social media were common carriers, uh, railroads and innkeepers and other common carriers uh, still have the right to expel uh, drunken, disorderly, uh, disruptive uh, people and causes uh, danger to other uh, participants. Um, the, the crucial question in common carriage is not whether you have a right to exclude. You, as common carriers clearly did. Uh, the question is, what is the government's right to second guess the reasonableness of exclusion or the classes um, that are excluded. So it's not done on an individualized basis. And this is this is important and this is essential in the concept of common carriage. Um, if you are in the business of, of making individualized decisions, um, you're not a common carrier. The courts have said this uh, repeatedly. Uh, Nairoke, a 1976 DC circuit decision is, is the most, I think, important decision that has laid out this, uh, this uh, analysis. Uh, and and there, uh, the, the, the point is that um, there might be instances when a common carrier uh, does try to, uh, to uh, exclude someone unfairly, and the law can reasonably compel them to host that person. And there, it's reasonable uh, for them to be able to say, we are doing this under compulsion, because they have the essential nature uh, of a conduit. Um, but what those cases generally um, are uh, about is, is the transportation of physical goods or the transportation of bits or data or the connection of telephone calls uh, without editorial intervention. So here we're talking about uh, a very different kind of service. Uh, social media not only have always held themselves out as, as curating and editing, but also what they do is, is inherently, uh, inherently involves editing. It's not like the telephone network, which connects calls and the calls happen in, in private. Uh, the social media services uh, connect users 
um, but always subject to this active, ongoing degree of editorial intervention. And here, I, I think this is where I think that the, um, the Judge Hinkle made, I think, his biggest mistake. Um, and again, I think it's understandable because you see this in, in the way the court has talked about this. But he uh, tries to contrast, uh, he says that there's, uh, plaintiffs argue that social media are like newspapers uh, and the uh, defendants, uh, that is Florida, say they're like uh, common carriers. And he says the truth is somewhere in the middle. And he, he doesn't fully explain what that middle means, but he talks about it in some detail where he says that um, uh, newspapers uh, screen everything up front. Um, so, you know, an op-ed or, 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 or an obituary or whatever uh, is, uh, is, is, is visible to the newspaper. And he says, but that's not true for social media. He says that 99% uh, plus of content uh, never gets reviewed. Further content on that site is, to that extent, invisible uh, to the provider. And he says essentially the same thing about parades that the, um, uh, uh, you can look at Hurley where the court says that the council selects expressive units of parades uh, and, and therefore uh, people can assume that the, uh, that the units in the parade that are included ha are, have, been, have been vetted through that review. Uh, so, that, so he gets this idea from these court cases and, and it's understandable, but I think it's wrong and we know it's wrong um, because uh, in the very next sentence of Hurley, uh, the court, after saying that it's reasonable that uh, selecting every unit would lead people to, to, to um, think that inclusion in the parade means that the council that organizes the parade has, uh, has decided it's worth including. Uh, the court then says, even if this view gives the council credit for a more considered judgment than it actively made, the council clearly decided to exclude a message it did not like from the communication it chose to make. And that is enough uh, to invoke its right as a private speaker to shape its expression by speaking on one subject while remaining silent on another. In other words, it doesn't matter whether you screen everything. You could, as some radio stations did, you could have a call-in show. They let anybody call in, right? And in that sense, you're sort of kind of like a common carrier. You're not screening everything in advance. But if you decide you don't want to uh, continue to host a call, you want to cut them off, uh, you can do that. Um, it doesn't matter that you screen in advance. It doesn't matter how visible the, to use Judge uh, Hinkle's term, uh, the, the speech is to you. What matters is that you are exercising that editorial or curatorial function to remove content that you think is antithetical to your overall expression. And I think that that's the rule in general for speech that is part of your expressive product that you are likely uh, to be um, attributed or, or intimately connected with. And we go back to the same debate we've just been having about whether that is the case. And I think common carriers uh, can reasonably be said to be conduits, um, but you can't force someone who does not operate as a conduit to be a conduit. You can only make a conduit operate consistently and treat everyone fairly. Well, um, Eugene, so, I look forward to hearing your thoughts yeah. on this. So uh, first, it's, it's important to realize a common carrier is an analogy here, just like shopping mall on the town square uh, in the sense of the shopping mall as a town square is an analogy, just like the university in Rumsfeld v. Fair is an analogy. So uh, I don't think any of us are talking about whether uh, common carrier law should be trans transplanted uh, root and branch 
exactly the way it's applied to an inn or to a railroad uh, should be a, uh, adapted to a, a social media. Quite, um, the question is, to what extent is it a helpful analogy? And what extent is it a closer analogy, at least to certain functions uh, of um, the uh, 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 social media than say a newspaper, which is an analogy on the other side? Um, and I think one way of thinking about it, again, is looking at cases like Pruneyard and Rumsfeld. These were not strictly common carrier cases. Shopping mall was not viewed as a common carrier under the traditional law. It may have been viewed as a place of public accommodation, but not as a common carrier. University in Rumsfeld, even more clearly not a common carrier. In fact, a university... If you look at some of the things that Barron was pointing to, they're very true of universities, right? University in many of its functions is extremely curatorial, certainly in defining, it, in hiring its faculties it is, in putting on its symposia it is. Uh, if university were really completely open to absolutely everybody to teach anything they wanted in the university, most people wouldn't want to go there as students, right? Um, uh, now, it's true, universities have historically been a little bit more open with regard to what their students say, some of them very open, some of them less so. And historically, universities have been pretty open with regard to what, uh, to what uh, recruiters they allow because it's in the university's interest to allow a broad range of recruiters. But always they've been understood as, as reserving the right to say, you know, we're not going to allow certain speech by students, we're not going to allow, especially their private universities, we're not going to allow certain recruiters on our premises. And the um, Congress in the Solomon Amendment said, well, sorry, we don't want you to have that right anymore. And in Rumsfeld v. Fair, the court unanimously said, yup, Congress is entitled to take away that right. So in a sense, in a sense, again, this is an analogy. It's not perfect analogy. Otherwise, if it were perfect analogy, it wouldn't be an analogy anymore, right? It would be identity. Um, uh, so, uh, but they said the universities were in a sense kind of in effect, like a common carrier. That's how I read this decision. Not as to everything by any means. They're not a common carrier as to their curriculum, again, or their hiring decisions, but as to this particular facet of what they do. Um, so the question is, to what extent can we say, look, social media platforms, for some things, they're very much like a newspaper or a broadcaster or some such. So for example, when they have a list of stories you might like, I think that's very much the social media platform's own speech. Uh, if they have a, a list, here's what we recommend, even more clearly, the platform's own speech. It's a platform's expression of its own opinion. But there's also a vast array of, of uh, material that they host that is submitted by third parties that basically, as the court points out, 99% of that is not meaningfully pre-screened. It's true that the platforms have reserved uh, have, have tried to reserve the right to block some of that, just like universities have tried to reserve the right to block certain recruiters. But it seems to me that a properly crafted statute can say, nope, sorry, as to those things, we're going to treat you more like a common carrier, a place of public accommodation, such. And, I'm sorry, go on. Yes. Professor, can I just, I, I have a question to throw in right there, because um, so do you think that the ordering of material on a news feed on Twitter falls in that newspaper-like category you just said. Because if you do, I mean, a lot of this debate is over what gets algorithmically uh, right. promoted. And I would feel like that right. means we're taking a huge part of the debate kind of and putting it to one right. side. Right. 
Although I think that's quite right, and I think it's important uh, uh, to, uh, to stress that even if I'm right that certain kinds of uh, of uh, viewpoint neutrality requirements imposed on the platforms are constitutional. For example, the requirement that they can't just block a news feed, uh, block somebody's, not news feed, excuse me, block somebody's Twitter feed altogether, uh, uh, deplatform it. Even if those requirements are constitutional, I think other kinds of requirements, for example, that they uh, 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 not discriminate in their algorithmically selected uh, news feed, I think those are probably unconstitutional. I'm tentative on this, but I think that's right. And I I think the court got it right in saying that those are the uh, Twitter's own speech. Um, so, uh, so it may very well be that this kind of common carrier treatment will only give the critics of the platforms, those who want to regulate the platforms, relatively little. Uh, but uh, but it, I think it would give them something. It would say that basically you can't just deplatform someone. And also if, think if somebody, as, a, as is an option, as I understand it in Twitter, if a user is subscribing to just kind of a chronological feed and says, I want to see this feed, then Twitter might be compelled to include that in this chronological uh, list that it gives. But when it comes to algorithmic judgment, among other things, I think a lot of users understandably rely on Twitter's algorithmic judgment to solve the problem of information overload to, to help them figure out which of the very, very, very many posts out there they should be looking at. And as to that, it seems to me that uh, Twitter's First Amendment rights would be quite strong. Here is a twist. Let's say this wasn't a state that did this. Let's say this was Congress that did this. And let's say Congress said, we're not going to require you to be viewpoint neutral in your algorithmic feeds, but we're only going to provide you immunity from libel liability, immunity from invasion of privacy liability and such. As to those feeds, the algorithmic feeds that you're providing, if you're viewpoint neutral. So you get to choose what his, uh, between two kind of historically recognized models. If you want to be uh, like a newspaper and have the right to select what to include in your, uh, in your algorithmic feed, then in that case, you might be held liable, assuming we can show the proper mental state and other elements of defamation law, you could be held liable if things that you forward this way, even if written by someone else, are defamatory. So we'll repeal in that measure, in some measure, 230C1 immunity for you. On the other hand, if you want the immunity, that's fine. Historically, under the common law, for example, phone companies did have, to, did have immunity uh, uh, from defamation liability, even when they're well aware that something uh, on their service was, uh, uh, was defamatory, like some outgoing uh, answering machine message. But then in that case, you have to be viewpoint neutral in arranging that, that feed. I'm inclined to say that that would be permissible. That would not be a so-called unconstitutional condition because it would just require people as to that particular newsfeed decision to choose whether they want to be treated like common law publishers who had the right to select, but at the same time were subject to the risk of defamation liability, or like common law conduits who were immune from defamation liability, but at the same time didn't have the right to pick and choose at least based on viewpoint what they're going to forward. But that would require Congress to do that because it's Congress that gave the 230 uh, C1 immunity, and it's only Congress that could attach conditions to that immunity, uh, with conditions that I think are constitutional, though we can have a debate about that. And I don't think a state could, could do that kind of, uh, uh, of um, uh, condition on 230 C1 option because it wasn't the state that granted the immunity in the first place. Well, I think I'm maybe in some ways getting better at and in some ways getting worse at uh, understanding 
your position in that you've, you're reconciling your positions that you've written, and I think persuasively, on how search engines are highly right. similar to newspapers. Um, and, you know, and yet here you are questioning to what degree maybe social media can have common carriage requirements. But then what you just said, I, I, I am very unclear on how a search engine, which sort of, it is in the business of discriminating. That is how it gives you things. It gives you right. things in an order by making choices. Right. How that could ever be viewpoint neutral. I don't understand how you write a viewpoint neutral algorithm. Oh. Well, so, so I agree that if Congress wanted, if Congress had the power to make Google viewpoint neutral, uh, it would make Google useless and it would be a very bad idea. And I would hope Congress wouldn't want to do that. At the same time, while I very much appreciate the value of search engines, and while I think Congress was quite right to immunize them from libel liability, I don't think search engines have a First Amendment right to immunity from defamation liability for things that they serve up. They may have pretty considerable protection under cases like New York Times v. Sullivan. In some situations, they could say, we just didn't know the material was uh, defamatory. Maybe even they, uh, uh, they could say, we were negligent in serving it up. But at least under traditional First Amendment rules in principle, you could, you could sue a search engine for, for defamation for things that they serve up. Uh, and uh, if you could show, for example, that you'd warned them that certain pages are defamatory, you'd inform them of that, then in that case, they might in principle be held liable for that. So I think if Congress wanted to, again, say to search engines, if you're going to engage in viewpoint discrimination, which again, I think sound search engines do, then you don't have this libel immunity. I think that would be a very bad idea. I think that would be very bad for consumer welfare, for the welfare of all of us who rely on search engines. I just don't think it would be unconstitutional. By the way, I should say, I'm not trying to write a statute here. I have some ideas about what might make sense, but I'm not at all sure they're good ideas. But what I am trying to do is trying to sort through the various policy arguments and the constitutional arguments. So I'm pretty confident, for example, that the requirement that, that a requirement that search engines simply host material and serve it up to those who expressly ask for it is constitutional. I'm pretty confident that a requirement that says they have to include it, uh, uh, include that material in the recommendations is unconstitutional. Uh, and it may be that as a result, the most that a state can do is something very small, which ultimately is probably not worth a political battle for the backers, in which case, you know, I'm fine with that. I just want to figure out for myself and for my readers, if um, readers of my articles, uh, what the First Amendment constraints are. And I just think that they're not as categorical as some people suggest here. Cases like Pruneyard and Rumsfeld and the practices that have evolved with regard to things like telephone companies, including competitive cell phone companies, with regard to UPS and FedEx, which are of course competitive with each other, those practices tell us a little bit, and the cases tell us even more, that certain kinds of mandates and social media companies, not by any means all, but certain kinds, uh, would be constitutionally permissible. Uh, Baron, jump on in. Uh, well, there's, there's a lot there. Um, I think it's worth noting that, um, so uh, Eugene's right, that uh, a whether you are a common carrier is not it's not about corporate status it's about each of the activities that you exactly. engage in and and indeed 
um, w this is exactly the right way to think about it, that you could divvy up a particular uh, services and, and think about them in uh, different ways. And, and most clearly, for example, uh, AT&T today offers a common carrier telephony service, uh, but text messaging uh, uh, has never been considered a common carrier service. And indeed, uh, in 2018, the FCC uh, finally uh, issued a declaratory order saying it wasn't a common carrier service because it involves editorial intervention. And that's under a particular test that the FCC has, uh, has developed going back to the computer inquiries in the uh, 1970s, uh, saying essentially, if, you, if, you're just, if you're just connecting uh, information from point A to point B and transporting it, that's a common carrier service. If you're engaging editorial intervention of any kind, even not editorial, but even even functional, you know, you you change the form of the of the, the of data. You uh, convert text messages to emails, and emails to text messages, and you downsize images and so on. Uh, that's not a common carrier service, right? I'm trying to paint a picture uh, briefly of how um, the the test as to what constitutes common carriage has been applied in the past, and indeed, again, it has been applied to different services. So Eugene's exactly right that you you could uh, perhaps. Uh, divvy up these services. And indeed, as you've noted, Corbin, uh, I think he and I agree about um, the vast majority of what's really at stake here, that these that these services, the component services of social media are not common carriage services. What we're really disagreeing about uh, is uh, is whether the um, services of, of simply hosting uh, a particular user, allowing other uh, users to find that user, allowing them to uh, uh, get content in an, in, a, in an uncurated feed from that user, uh, whether those things could be uh, subject to something like common carriage regulation. That, that in a nutshell, uh, is, is really the question. And I, I think it's highly fact-specific. Uh, and, and at a minimum, I think we can both agree that this law doesn't actually tee up that analysis because this law doesn't attempt to do that. And this law also, as Eugene has noted repeatedly, uh, has all sorts of other clear constitutional problems. I mean, it, it, it clearly singles out uh, particular kinds of content uh, for favorable or disfavorable treatment. And I think the court's right that that necessarily implicates strict scrutiny. And the, the Supreme Court has said repeatedly that balancing out speech uh, is not uh, a compelling government interest. So you lose at step one in strict scrutiny if you get there. Um, but that's not really the question that Eugene wants to to engage in. He's he's in, interested in this this um, still academic, but it might not be for long. We could imagine someone writing such a law that that um, that tries to take a a more uh, careful uh, approach. Um, in some ways, in some ways, I think you're right, Corbin. It's sort of unlikely because it doesn't really get uh, the people who are loudest and angriest doesn't really get them what they want. Uh, it could happen. Uh, we might get there. Um, but I think as a practical matter, I, I, I feel relatively confident saying this, I think we're likely to see that uh, the bills that come out of Texas, for example, is going to rewrite its bill uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, and that bill will probably be passed uh, by the end of that session in September. Uh, so we're going to get another version of this. And I think it's, gonna, it's not going to be the, the, the targeted focused bill that Eugene might recommend, no matter how clearly he articulates the case for that. Because uh, again, it doesn't, doesn't get people what they want. So, um, so I, I, I'm trying to be fair to him. I think he's raising uh, difficult questions. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, 
I think that, that we, we have already discussed the framework through which the court is going to make an assessment. Uh, does having to host someone on your platform that you find reprehensible, uh, is that attributed to you as a speaker? And uh, Corbin, you've asked about, you know, are we going to have surveys? Uh, I, I think indeed is that as those cases get litigated, I, I think you're going to actually see that kind of, of um, analysis. And I think what you'll find uh, is, that, uh, is that people do reasonably attribute the speech that they see on those platforms to those editorial judgments. And I think you'll see uh, user experience and other uh, technical experts uh, explain just how very problematic it would be. Uh, and this is not like broadcasting, where on broadcasting, you know, you can you can have, um, you know, a voice that comes on once an hour to say, this is um, this is uh, so-and-so station, um, and, and these are our views, and therefore the, the cable operator, when they host that channel, uh, is not thought to be that uh, provider. You know, there, there are ways that these traditional media have distinguished themselves that I don't think work so clearly here, but we, we've gone over that, that ground, I think, several times. Let me let me respond to the unconstitutional conditions argument. So we we addressed this in our comments uh, last fall to the um, NTIA when the uh, Trump administration asked through the NTIA asked the FCC to, to rewrite uh, Section 230 to to implement some of the concepts we're talking about today. Uh, and I uh, I have yet to see uh, a really good uh, uh, response to that. And I, I am. Um, I'm not the resident expert here on the First Amendment. That, of course, would be the person who actually teaches First Amendment law. But, um, but I will I will point out that um, it seems to me the court has has pretty clearly forbidden uh, the use of unconstitutional conditions that are intended to coerce the surrender of First Amendment rights. And there are a number of cases on this. But, um, but uh, for example, in uh, uh, Spicer uh, versus Randall, a case that I'm sure Eugene knows better than I do, 1958 case. Uh, the court struck down a California law that denied tax exemptions to World War II veterans who refused to swear a loyalty oath to the U.S. and said that denying that exemption um, because they engaged in certain forms of speech was it was in effect to uh, penalize them uh, for earlier forms of speech. And that was held to be different from earlier cases that denied um, eligibility for public employment or public office or whatever um, because the, the objective in those cases was to do something other than to restrain speech itself. Uh, and here, the restraint on speech is the same thing we've been talking about all along. It's the thing that um, Judge Hinkle's opinion recognizes, I think, pretty well. Uh, the speech at issue is the editorial function, right? That is, it's editorial speech. It's a decision not to carry a particular conduct, uh, content. And I, I don't see, um, based on my, uh, again, admittedly imperfect understanding of, of these cases and the um, uh, League of Women Voters case from the, I think, 1980s, I don't see the court being willing to, uh, to, to condition uh, eligibility for a benefit, in this case, immunity, on uh, a, a company's uh, surrender of its uh, long-established and, and um, aggressively exercised First Amendment rights. But uh, Eugene, I'd be curious to hear uh, what, what you think about that. Sure. Um, so I, I totally appreciate the importance of the unconstitutional conditions doctrine. But there's also, it's not labeled that way, but that's in reality, where there is a constitutional conditions doctrine. Certain kinds of constitution, conditions and government benefits, even ones that limit the use of those benefits for certain kinds of speech, are permissible. Certain kinds are not. As best we can tell from the cases which are admittedly not not crystal clear on this, but as best we can tell, the distinction is between the government saying, 
we're giving you this benefit, but you can only use it for certain kinds of speech defined in a viewpoint neutral way. Uh, and uh, uh, that's permissible, generally speaking. On the other hand, saying we're going to give you this benefit. And if you want this benefit, even as to some speech, you have to promise not to engage in any other speech so long as you're getting this benefit. So that essentially allows this tail of the benefit to wag the dog of the entirety of the, uh, of the beneficiary's speech. And that's the unconstitutional conditions. That's very abstract. Let me give you a concrete example from Regan v. Taxation with Representation. Uh, and that had to do, and I oversimplify here, but basically it had to do with a longstanding uh, rule that um, uh, entities that get charitable tax exemptions, uh, to be specific, so-called 501c3 entities, entities that, get, uh, that can get uh, tax deductible contributions, cannot use those contributions for electioneering, for advocating for or against a candidate, or for a substantial amount of lobbying, substantial advocacy for or against um, against uh, uh, legislation. Uh, so if you want this benefit of having donations to you be tax deductible, which is kind of like a matching grant, economically speaking, from the government, then you have to not use those donations for electioneering. Do you have a right, a First Amendment right, to advocate for or against the candidate? Oh, absolutely you do. Very, very well settled. But you don't have a right to get tax-deductible contributions in order to do that. Now, here's the important point that the court said there. This is all conditional on uh, an entity being able to have a separate affiliate, so-called 501c4 affiliate, that takes non-tax-deductible contributions and then spends it more or less however it pleases. I oversimplify here again, but basically that's it. Because that prevents the the benefit, the tail from wagging the dog of the entirety of the organization speech. The organization can say, for our non-electioneering uh, speech, we're going to use tax-deductible contributions, and for other speech, we're going to use other contributions. How does this play out with regard to the possible conditions attached to 47 U.S.C. Section 230 immunity? Let's say Congress says, if you want 230C1 immunity, which is to say immunity from liability for other people's defamation or other such things, then you have to not engage in viewpoint discrimination at all in anything you do. Then in that case, that I do think would be pretty clearly uh, an unconstitutional condition. But let's say the government says, uh, the standard thing, all we're required by the First Amendment to do is to allow you to say whatever you want to say subject to the possibility of defamation liability if what you say, including what you pass on from others, turns out to be defamatory. However, we're going to make it easier for you to engage in viewpoint neutral, algorithmic sorting and such of various things by saying if you engage in this viewpoint neutral algorithmic sorting, then in that case, we will give you uh, immunity from defamation liability. And if you want to engage in viewpoint-based uh, algorithmic sorting uh, and, and convey, your, uh, convey kind of uh, uh, um, uh, the results of those algorithms, uh, then uh, you can do that. You just don't get this benefit of, uh, of 230C1 immunity. That, I think, would be a constitutional condition. That would be like what happened in taxation uh, with representation versus Regan, that an entity could say, look, for most things, we get 230C1, excuse me, most things we can do whatever we want, but we don't get immunity. For some things, we get immunity, but then we're limited in 
that in that the only things that are immunized are those things that we edit in a viewpoint neutral way. Again, I'm not at all sure that's a good idea because it may basically break things for users in ways that will ultimately make us pretty much worse off as a general matter. But I do think that would be a permissible uh, condition. I, 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 I wanted you to do that because you would do a better job of summarizing that. Uh, we did lay out this in our comments, but you've, uh, you've put it up very well. I think the question in Regan is, is it, quote, unduly burdensome? Uh, the court said it was not unduly burdensome to simply set up a separate uh, 501c4. Mm -hmm. Uh, by contrast, uh, League of Women Voters uh, said that essentially, if you got any government money, um, you got only 1% of your budget from the federal government, um, you, were, uh, you were barred from, uh, uh, from editorializing. So, so the question is where between those two uh, extremes uh, would such a, a, a conditional uh, uh, grant of, of 230 immunity fall? And I think it really depends on how it's structured. And as you say, um, I'm not sure we can we can predict right now, um, but I I think once again the um, we we would the three of us on this call and those of us who listen to this podcast I think would like to imagine that uh, that careful thoughtful analysis of this kind is what uh, rules the day. Uh, I don't see any evidence of that. Uh, Congress keeps uh, and and state uh, lawmakers uh, keep doing things that um, uh, are far outside the bounds of what perhaps would be constitutional. So I, I, will, I will acknowledge that uh, the unconstitutional conditions doctrine only gets my argument so far, uh, and that some versions of, of uh, tying 230 uh, to uh, some sort of conduit model might be constitutional. I, I just think, think it's unlikely that we're gonna get that uh, kind of condition in, in uh, anything that's actually likely to pass anytime soon. So. I, this has been great fun and we could go and go and go. Let's, um, I'm going to bring it to a close. Why don't we go through one more round? Each of you take a, a couple of minutes to sum up. And, and actually, Baron was leading right into what I was interested to hear from one of you. You know, from Eugene, I'd be interested to know if you think this is kind of all academic because ultimately, um, how do you craft a, a statute that makes the kinds of uh, maybe uh, required hosting points that you're talking about and, and keep it constitutional if the legislators are clearly acting from a, a motive of just being hopping mad about um, the politics of the perceived politics of the regulated parties. And then from Barron, I'm interested to know, um, you know, put on your, your lawyer had and think through the other side? And, and do you think that at the very least, people who are angry at social media platforms, if they use the common carriage analogy, are kind of using their best argument? Do you think this is actually at least the, the most promising path that they're going down, even if you don't agree with it? So um, Eugene, please start us off. Sure. So let's just step back a bit from these con um, constitutional debates, which I think are very important. But let's just step back a bit and just think what's going on here. Part of what is, what's going on is that some conservatives feel they're being unfairly discriminated against by liberal establishment and big tech. That, that's certainly part of it. But, you know, it's interesting, even some liberal professors, Erwin Chemerinsky, the dean at Berkeley Law School, one of the top liberal professors, uh, liberal uh, constitutional scholars in the country, Genevieve Lekir, Nelson Tebbe, Michael Dorff, have also expressed some concern about, uh, about these uh, um, uh, social media platforms. And I think understandably, 
Uh, I'm not a liberal. I'm conservative-ish, libertarian-ish somewhere there. I'm generally open to private property rights, strongly open to private property rights. I'm generally fine with private power, which I think has gotten us tremendous amount of benefit and innovation. But at the same time, I think it should give us pause that a few uh, uh, extremely wealthy and powerful private corporations are having such outsized potential influence on elections and on public debate, uh, much more than, say, a newspa newspapers historically had, although, of course, newspapers had historically that and still have considerable such power. Um, and especially in a country that's very closely split, uh, if a, a platform can indeed change an election by a little bit, uh, ch ch excuse me, change the uh, vote by a little bit, that could that could change the results of the election. Again, that may be good. We might say either that's great because they're using honestly earned uh, uh, assets in order to leverage power that has come from their consume their their customers, their users being willing to use their their platforms, uh, and maybe they'll do it for use it for good. Uh, on the other hand, you might also say, wait a minute, you know, we're suspicious and rightly so of government power to restrict debate. Private power isn't as dangerous because Facebook can't throw you in jail. Uh, but, um, but it has, especially once the private power becomes powerful enough, it could potentially be quite dangerous uh, for democracy, not just as to the particular things that are being blocked today, but the things that could be, uh, that could be blocked uh, uh, in the future. I think a lot of people have been surprised just in the last three or four years just how much more authority the platforms have been asserting. So I think that's a very serious concern. Now, one possibility is that's going to just yield uh, a, um, some tantrums by some conservative legislators uh, that are going to lead nowhere because the laws are going to be so clearly unconstitutional. Another possibility is that there will be actually something of a left-right alliance. You know, even, even then-candidate Biden spoke out about some concerns he had about Section 230 on the campaign trail. It's not just conservatives who are concerned about uh, 230, although conservatives and liberals may be concerned about different facets. No, not entirely different facets, I think. And there might be uh, a, enough of a political coalition, maybe even in Congress, but certainly in some states, and it may be well-counseled enough that they realize they can't get everything they want and still have it be upheld, so they're going to get something. Uh, that doesn't seem to me implausible. My, my experience with predicting how my fellow Americans are going to vote on various things uh, has been very um, uh, depressing. <laughs> that is to say, I've erred again and again and again. And so what do I know? But I do think that there is enough serious concern there, both from the left and from the right, uh, that it may be that serious people who are in the political process, we'll end up with a seriously drafted and uh, uh, possibly narrower but defensible such statute. We'll see. Well, fair enough. Uh, okay. Okay. Well, Corbin, you asked whether uh, the right is making the right argument here. Is, is common carriage the right rabbit hole to go down? Uh, I, I think they would first have to be honest about what common carriage actually involves, which, as I've said, uh, means uh, not that you can't remove uh, anyone, uh, it, the history of common carriage, once again, is that you can remove people who are disruptive, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, at most, I think common carriage gets them a uh, system by which the government can second guess 
those decisions and can second guess the fairness of classifications and so on. Uh, I'm not sure it gets them that much uh, because of all the First Amendment issues we've discussed, but I, th I think at least that is a question uh, worth asking honestly. Now, it's true that there have been uh, common carriage mandates in other contexts, like the must-carry mandate for uh, cable. I, I think that's uh, pretty easily distinguishable. Uh, again, that wasn't really about uh, what what uh, uh, individual show or uh, person got onto the cable network. It was about uh, having to, to set aside a certain amount of your channel capacity. And again, cable providers never objected to anything more than that. Um, you asked me another question, which, and I think maybe helps illustrate my answer to your first question. You asked me before we did this show about um, what I think might constitute uh, something like a common carrier service on the internet. And, and I, think, um, I think if you look at the domain name system, I think you might see where uh, these concerns are, I think, better founded. So uh, ICANN uh, now administers the domain name system that is now untethered from the federal government as of uh, four years ago. I, I had deep concerns about that precisely because it cuts off the, the vital role of the, of the U.S. government in approving changes to the domain name system. So there isn't clear state action. But uh, even absent that, I think it's... Um, I think one could reasonably argue uh, that when ICANN decides, um, it's the private nonprofit that runs a domain name system and has since uh, the early um, days of the internet, when ICANN decides who is going to get to administer a top level domain like .com, um, they write contracts with a the operator of that registry, uh, which is VeriSign today. Um, but also there are many other uh, companies that operate uh, top-level domains, and some of them are basically appear to be open to everybody, like .com. Um, some of them are, are community uh, top-level domains. You know, uh, .gay doesn't work if the operator of that registry doesn't have the right to exclude anti-gay groups, for example. Um, but that seems to be pretty different from .com, and I think one could reasonably argue that, um, that there might be some room for common carriage principles in ensuring that, uh, that you can get a domain name, uh, or at least that, um, that viewpoint discrimination isn't allowed at that top level. And that may not be the same thing as um, GoDaddy uh, as the retailer of domain names uh, being forced to sell a domain name to a group that it finds objectionable. And they, they have community standards themselves. But I, I, I think if you go deep enough in the stack uh, to use the, the model of, uh, of layered, uh, uh, layered conception of the internet. I, I think you might find application of these principles. I just don't think that they apply at the level of, um, of a particular website that offers a, a particular service and, and orchestrates uh, a particular community any more than they apply at the level of a parade organizer. Uh, so, uh, does that, does that answer your question about uh, where I think the other side should go here? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, enough for now. <laughs> um, gentlemen, this has been great. Thank you both so much for coming on. Um, Professor Volok, thank you so much. Uh, Baron, you know, we'll talk again sometime soon. Thank you all for listening. Uh, I'm Corbin Barthel. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. Until next time. Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.